ஏ வீட்டு Lord we pray that you will speak to us. Lord you know what we need to hear. You know the way we need to hear it. And so Father I pray that nothing would stand in the way of you accomplishing what you desire in our lives. May I be uh, worthy and honoring of your word in the words that I speak. May we honor you in the attitude of our hearts as we listen. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. <clears throat> okay. How many of you are familiar with Ipman? Uh is um uh, he he's Ipman or I used to think he was called IP man, but then I watched the movie I realized he's Ipman. Uh he's a master of the Wing Chun uh, martial art. and uh, a bunch of movies have been made about him played by Donnie Yen and so the first movie was released in 2008 and in this movie which is the story of Iman uh the Japanese invade China and so Iman is from China he's from the province of Foshan uh and the people there are oppressed by the Japanese specifically a general a Japanese general named Miura okay who is a karate master so this japanese general organizes an arena where the uh, different chinese martial artists can uh, come together fight in this arena and hopefully win a bag of rice for every match that they win and so there's this very memorable scene where ipman tell, tells the general uh, he tells him Uh, basically meaning that he wants to fight 10 uh, Japanese black belts at the same time uh, not just for 10 bags of rice but as revenge for the Chinese martial artists who lost because if they lost they were executed so Ipman uh one man proceeds to completely crush 10 enemies all at once and by the time he's done everyone remaining uh are all full of fear you know they they are fear stricken now today we are looking at something similar uh two men defeating 20 of their enemies so one is to 10 times 2 lah and these two men uh Jonathan and his armor bearer and the big idea Uh, that we can see from today's message is that when we have faith god wins the battle according to his will okay so that's the takeaway message for today when we have faith god wins the battle according to his will now just a quick recap of where we left off last week uh, paul was facing off against a humongous army of philistines uh 3000 chariots and as many men as the sand on the seashore and the the israelites were so terrified that they abandoned Saul uh, until there were only 600 men remaining with him now the later part of chapter 13 also talks about how the israelites had no weapons except for Saul and his son Jonathan and so that is the situation uh, a well equipped philistine army that far outnumbered just a small number of helpless israelites 
And so the, the situation was especially bad because Saul, the king of Israel, had not followed God's instructions. And Samuel had left uh, Saul, telling him that his kingdom would not endure. And so Saul doesn't even have God on his side now. But thankfully, the king of Israel isn't the only person that God could work through. You see, while Saul was cowering with 600 men, Saul's son, Jonathan, together with his armor bearer, they both show great courage, not in themselves, but in God. And so that brings us to our first point for today. And that is, Jonathan and his armor bearer gave a display of faith. Now, although we are in another chapter today, chapter 14, uh, the terrifying situation from last week is still pretty much the same. Nothing much has changed. Although Saul started out with 3,000 professional soldiers, he ended up with only 600 men, including those who responded to his summons throughout all of Israel. Now, some of his men previously might even have defected over to the Philistines, it's suggested in verse 21. And so most of the Israelites abandoned their king and they ran and hid from the Philistines because the battle seemed like a lost cause. But Jonathan didn't respond like the other men or like his father. Instead of fear, he responded with faith. Jonathan tells his armor bearer, his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost to the other side. Now let's Stop for a moment to consider, what could Jonathan have been thinking? You know, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 3, Jonathan had also attacked a Philistine outpost, and so that was what had triggered this war in the first place. But when he attacked that, that Philistine outpost in, in chapter 13, he had a thousand men with him. Now, in chapter 14, he only had one unarmed man with him. So what did he hope to accomplish? What did he want to do with just the two of them against this entire army of Philistines? Now we see Jonathan's thought process in verse 6. He says, Uh, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And so this is probably the key verse for today's passage, that perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And so here we see that Jonathan is not there at the Philistine outpost because he believes he and his armor bearer can do it. He is there because he believes God can do it. I just want to highlight three things about Jonathan's faith that we can see from verse 6 alone. And firstly, that Jonathan believed that God cared about them. Now, there's no other reason why he would think that the Lord would act on their behalf. There's no reason why God would want to act in their behalf other than the fact that he cared about his people. And so that's what Jonathan believed, that God cared about the interests of his people, the Israelites. Second 
thing that Jonathan believed was that God was able to save them. He says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. And so there's no question of God's power and ability. Nothing can prevent God. Nothing can restrain God from saving them. And so God was able. God was able to save them. Now, thirdly, Jonathan believed that God could use them. Now, this is the interesting part. Jonathan doesn't stay with his father and the rest of the remaining Israelites and just, you know, get on his knees and pray, ask for God to save them, wait for God to do it supernaturally, you know, send a meteor or open up the earth, swallow them. And the reason why Jonathan goes up to the Philistine outpost with his armor bearer was to place himself in a position of readiness to be used by God. He believed that God could save them through an army by many, yes, but God could also very well use just him and his armor bearer, a few as well. And so Jonathan was ready and willing to be an agent of God's will. And so friend, that, that takes incredible faith to not just believe that God can do incredible things, but that God can do incredible things through you. Now, the Bible is full of displays of God's amazing acts, creating everything out of nothing, for example, during the creation of, of this world. Uh, amazing. Causing miracles to happen outside the, the normal order of nature. Amazing. But some of God's most amazing acts involve the use of mankind. And he doesn't just work with mankind despite their many weaknesses. Many times he works through their many weaknesses. And the end result is that God alone is glorified. Brother Yun, who is a, a Chinese house church leader and evangelist, he was exiled to Germany. He writes in his autobiography, he writes, it is not great men who change the world, but weak men in the hands of a great God. Let me repeat that. It is not great men who change the world, but weak men in the hands of a great God. Friends, we may find ourselves in Jonathan's shoes, relatively weak, ill-equipped, vastly outmatched by the challenge we are facing, whether it's a, a task that God has called us to or a challenge that God has allowed us to go through. But Jonathan's faith was not in his own ability, nor was it in the ability for his circumstances to change. It was in God's ability, a God who cared, a God who was able, a God who could do great things through weak people. Now let's pause for a moment and consider our first discussion and reflection question. And that is, is there something that God is asking you to step out in faith so that he might work through you? And for the children, how can God use you to do something good to someone else? Okay, we have two minutes to spend some time uh, Two minutes to discuss this.
starting now. Okay, let's move on to my second point, which is seeking God's will. Now, there's one character that's introduced here in chapter 14, and that is Ahijah, the priest. And verse 3 specifically mentions that Ahijah is wearing an ephod. Now, the ephod is a sort of apron uh, meant to be worn by the high priest. And often it was accompanied by a breastplate of stones representing the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And it also contained the Urim and Thummim, which were two stones that were used to find out God's will. Now, we don't know how they functioned. Um, we don't know whether it's like tossing a coin, uh, yes, no answers, or whether it's like shaking a magic eight ball, you know, that God's will would somehow be written or whatever. We don't know. Um, but God would make his will known through these two stones, which were uh, carried by the priest in his effort. And so Saul has access to finding out God's will through this Urim and Thummim and Ahijah the priest who was with him. And so Saul is able to find out what is God's will. But we don't see Saul consulting God until much later in the passage once, once things are already happening in verse 19. Then Saul, uh, asking the, the priest to withdraw his hand at that point, 
probably meant that he stopped consulting God uh, and he proceeded to join the battle without seeking God's guidance. Uh, earlier in chapter 13, Saul's fear had also driven him to go ahead with his own plans without consulting God. So Saul had the means to consult God, but he did not. Now contrast this with his son, Jonathan. Jonathan doesn't have access to the priest. He doesn't have access to the effort with the Urim and Tumim. And, but Jonathan doesn't automatically go ahead and assume that God wants him to attack the outpost. Remember in verse 6, he tells his armor bearer, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Perhaps. Maybe. So he still needs to seek God's will. So how does Jonathan seek God's will? In verses 8 to 10, Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Come on then, we will cross over towards them, the Philistines, and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. And so Jonathan and the, the armor bearer puts themselves at risk to ask God for a sign to determine his will. Now you think about it, when they let the, the, the Philistines see them, okay, um, verse 8, let them see us, right? When, when they allow the Philistines to see them, it removes the advantage of surprise. And so the, the, the way that um, the, the location that, that the Philistine outpost was at and uh, how Jonathan and his armor bearer would have made their way there, they could have easily climbed uh, cliffs and ambushed them without being seen. But no, they put themselves at risk in order to determine God's will. And so Jonathan commits himself to a situation where he will be ready to respond once God's will is made clear. Now, let me clarify something here. In this passage, Jonathan is exercising great faith by putting himself at risk to seek God's will. But this is not a pattern for us to follow in every situation today. Okay, so we shouldn't go through life uh, flipping coins and, and setting conditions for God and demanding that God will answer us a certain way and that he will give us a sign in the way that we want. That is called putting him to the test. And we need to remember that our context today is very different from Jonathan's. We have the benefit of having access to the entire Bible. We have access to both the Old and New Testaments, a total of 66 books. And a whole lot of God's will is already contained in His Word, in the Bible. Okay, The Bible tells us uh, who God is, what He's like, uh, what He likes, uh, who He values, the sort of people He is against. So a lot of what God uh, wants and, and the direction that He moves in, uh, the direction He wants us to move in, all that is already revealed in the Bible. And so you don't need an Urim and Tumim to know 
that God doesn't want you to pursue an affair, for example, or that God wants you to be kind to somebody who has hurt you. God's will about such situations has already been revealed in what he teaches in the Bible about adultery, for example, and how to treat your enemies. And so God's will is already very clear to us uh, in many ways now compared to Jonathan. On top of that, we have the Holy Spirit who lives in us, granting us direction as we draw closer to God in an intimate relationship. So when God's will is clear, we don't need to ask for signs or that would be putting him to the test. On the other hand, asking God for direction when his will is not uh, clearly known to us is okay. It is good to ask for direction when we don't know. But we also need to be careful about setting conditions for God to find out his will. For example, and I think, uh, I think this is from experiencing God. If you tell God, okay, if you open this door of opportunity, then I will take it as this is from you. God, you want me to go and, and enter into that door of opportunity. Okay. Uh, sounds familiar, right? Uh, you're praying, uh, God, I don't know whether I should choose this, this or this, whether I should uh, take this job, this job, this job, or whether I should uh, you know, get involved with this girl, that girl, that girl. You know? And then, oh, there's a, there's a door of opportunity. Okay, God, this must be your will for me. And so you go down, uh, you enter into that door and you head down that road. However, this is a dangerous practice to adopt because if we always use open doors to determine what, uh, whether God wants something for you, then the moment there's an opportunity, you consider it to be God's will for you. And if opportunity is God's will for you, then what's the difference between uh, God's will and temptation? Because temptation is also an opportunity to do what is wrong. And temptation is an opportunity to sin. And so would a door of opportunity towards sin, would that be God's will? Obviously not. And so we, we need to be very careful with setting conditions for God in, in how we determine His will, saying that God, uh, you must answer this way. And if you answer this way, I'm just going to assume that that's what you want. The responsibility of making the right choices lies with us, not on God who, who uh, has to open or close the right doors and then we just blindly follow mechanically. And so if you tell, uh, if you tell God to show his will to you by flipping a coin, you know, let's say, okay, hits, I migrate to Australia. Or tails, I migrate to New Zealand. What if he wants you to stay in Malaysia? You know, so you can't you can't shortcut discovering God's will through a, a continuous and intimate relationship with Him. You can't use a, a gimmick. You can't use a method, a pattern, uh, or or your own conditions or a sign that you dictate. There is no shortcut other than uh. That there is no shortcut to knowing God's will. Uh, the only way to know God's will is through an 
intimate and continuous relationship with him. And so we should seek God's direction when it's not clear. Sometimes it may involve signs, but we need to also make sure that we are fully open to all that God has to say. And so if we think that God may be leading us in this direction, uh, we see things that we interpret as signs, okay, allow other mature believers of Christ to confirm it for you so that it's not skewed by your own bias. And as you can see from today's passage, sometimes we need to take a step of faith to position ourselves in a way that God's will can be made known to us more clearly. It can be asking somebody for advice. It can be undergoing a fast. It can be attending a silent retreat. Seeking God's will for our lives should not cause paralyzed inaction, but nor should it result in blind activity. So we need to find a good balance that we are not uh, terrified of, of stepping out in faith because we, we don't know God's direction, nor should we just blindly rush out and, and do something uh, when we don't know what God's will is for us. Now let's look at our second question for today. And that is, how do you usually seek God's will when it's not already clear? And for the children, what do you want what do you do to find out what God wants? Okay, let's take two minutes to discuss this and to reflect. Okay, let's look at our last point for today. How God wins the battle. 
Now, when Jonathan is clear that God had given the Philistines over to them, so clear that it was God's will and direction, he went ahead with his armor bearer. They both did the Yiban thing, okay? And the two of them took out 20 men altogether. But God was not finished. That attack of taking out 20 men at the Philistine outpost was just the beginning. It was the, the catalyst for God to deal with the rest of the Philistine army with their 3,000 chariots and as many men as sand on the seashore. And so verse 15 says that panic struck the whole Philistine army and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Uh, after two Israelites had killed 20 Philistines, the Philistines who had believed that their God had been defeated or maybe had abandoned them, and, and this earthquake would have been associated with a God participating in the battle, much like the, the thunder uh, at the Battle of Ebenezer in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And on top of that, the Philistines already had a run-in with Israel's God when they captured the ark. And so they might have been remembering all of that and it all came in terror for them. And in their panic, they fell into total confusion and they, they were striking each other with their swords. And so this is actually very similar to what happened in Judges chapter 7, verse 22. Uh, Israel's enemies back then, the Midianites, uh, were also described to be as many as the sands on the seashore. And uh, under Gideon, uh, they were also thrown into a panic and slaughtered each other. So same sort of uh, tactic that God used to defeat the Midianites. And so God was the main combatant who turned the tide of the war. Uh, all the signs of divine activity are there. There's an indication of God's will. There's winning against overwhelming odds. There's a large-scale natural event, an earthquake, and there is an unusual confusion and panic among the enemy. And so all this makes it very clear to all, not just to, to Jonathan or to Saul, but to uh, the Israelites and the Philistines, that this is God's doing. You know, this is not because of Saul. This is not because of the Israelites. It's not even because of Jonathan. All Jonathan had done was reduce the Philistines' numbers by 20, right? The rest of it was entirely God's doing. And so verse 23 puts it very clearly. On that day, the Lord saved Israel. No one else. And perhaps this puts into perspective the events of chapter 13. You know, when we saw last week how, uh, you know, the, the previous battle with the Ammonites Saul had managed to rally together people from all over Israel, up to 330,000 men. And this time, he could only hold 600 men. The rest had run off and, and hid. And so God allows Saul's army to be reduced so drastically, just like how he reduced Gideon's army from uh, Judges chapter 7. Uh, reduce Gideon's army from 32,000 men to 300 men. And God did that. He allowed that so that there is no mistake. Only he deserves the glory because he is the one who wins the battle. 
By the way, in case you have not yet noticed it, this is the same pattern that frames our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 makes it clear that it is the work of Christ that saves us. We were helpless, we were dead in our sin, we were weak, we were powerless, and so none of us can boast that we have contributed in some way to our salvation. Other than having faith in Jesus, Jesus who did all the work, Jesus who was the one who suffered and died in our place for our sins. And so God was the one who won the battle for our souls, not us. So friends, you might be in the middle of some sort of battle right now, you know, where you feel like you're just overwhelmed and the battle is unwinnable because you don't have the resources. You don't see how it's possible. You, you can't see uh, how anyone else will be able to do any better. And so if you're in that situation, I urge you to consider God's purpose in all of this. You know, just ask the question, where is God in all of this? Could he, perhaps, could he be reducing your army so that you would depend solely on him? So that he alone would be glorified. That when he saves you and he delivers you in a way that only he is able to do, he alone is glorified. One more thing I'd like us to see from today's passage is that when God is clearly at work, when we see that God is clearly at work, it turns fear into courage. When the Israelites saw that God was at work, it turned their fear into courage. Saul and his 600 men, they were quick to join the battle once they saw the Philistine army melting away in all directions. And the, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines, uh, either because they had defected, as I mentioned earlier, or maybe they were prisoners, maybe they were serving as slaves, they abandoned the Philistines and they went over to the Israelites' side. And the Israelites who had hidden themselves away when they first saw the Philistine army assembling because they were so scared, they also came out of hiding and they joined the battle. And so when, when the Israelites saw God at work, their fear turned to courage. And so once... Once the, the Philistines were, were being defeated by, by God, uh, the Israelites are the cleanup crew again, okay, just like the battle at Ebenezer. They routed the Philistines, they chased them off. And so what this shows us is that uh, what brings courage to combat our fear is not the absence of danger, but the presence of God in that situation. Let me repeat that. What brings courage to combat our fear is not the absence of danger, but the presence of God in that situation. How many people, even Christians, are afraid of ghosts, uh, demons, you know, other supernatural things? And so as a, as a pastor, sometimes people will come to me and ask me basically to be a ghost pastor, lah, okay? go to their house, uh, pray, uh, do, do some home cleansing, whatever. And uh, because they've been seeing or hearing you know, creepy stuff in their house. And um, I've only gone a few times. I don't have a lot of experience in this. Um, but each time I've gone, I prayed. Uh, but I have not personally encountered uh, spiritual activity there. But I will confess that in the past, uh, not at these homes where uh, the, 
people have been bothered by spirits and all that. But um, just places that are dark and unfamiliar, uh, I have been creeped out myself at times. And my, my imagination just goes into overdrive. I start getting goosebumps everywhere. I see, or, or rather, I imagine that I can see things and that sort of thing. And so uh, I, I, I do, I am able to like spook myself. Okay. But what helped me greatly, what helped me overcome this, this fear that I, I uh, spook myself into uh, was simple logic uh, that came out of something that I already knew. And that, that something is simply that I knew that God was real, okay? That God, God uh, was real, is still real, will always be real, right? He's not dead. Uh, and so it didn't really matter if demons or spirits were there because I belong to God and he is far greater than any evil being. And so because I knew that God was real, and I knew that God is far greater than any evil force. Uh, I no longer had uh, that that spooky. Uh, I I no longer spooked myself out into uh, fearing like crazy. And so it was something I already knew, but it just clicked together one day, and my fear just disappeared. Uh, not because I was no longer in a dark or spooky place, because I no longer uh, go around the dark. No but simply because I knew that God was present there with me in the dark. So, if you are struggling with fear in your life, may I suggest that you don't just focus on the source of your fear or you don't just focus on how you handle that fear. Focus on God. Focus on how God is greater than whatever is causing that fear. Focus on how God is present with you. Let God be the source of your courage. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? Now let's look at our final question for today. And that is, what is one battle that you're facing that you need God to win for you? And for the kids, what is something difficult that you need God's help with? Okay, we have two minutes.
Okay. In conclusion, I'd like you to know that when we have faith, God wins the battle according to His will. And so would you be ready to step out in faith to position yourself to better discern God's will? Whatever that step might be, would you step out in faith to position yourself to better discern His will? And do allow God to be glorified in all the battles that He wins for you. Give Him the credit. He deserves it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.